All right, Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, continue to look at uh, this, uh, this incredible letter, and we're moving fast. We're looking at big pieces at a time, but I hope it's been helpful for you. Uh, this, is, this has been an encouraging letter if you're a Christian, just remembering kind of who you are in Christ, or if you're someone who just wants to share the gospel. If you're like, man, I, I know I need to share the good news with others. I'm not always sure what to say. Uh, this has just been a good reminder every single week of the news that we believe and the news that we want to share. So Romans 5, let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 11. It's our passage for this morning. Verse 1 reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. This is God's very Word. Let's pray as we look at this amazing passage together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the time we have this morning, thankful for the friendships of this church, thankful we can celebrate Matt and Alexis, and Lord, just the community of believers we have here is is always so encouraging. Lord, this morning we want to talk about joy. There is so much in this world to be discouraged by, the world around us, the culture, disappointing friends. Lord, our own sin gives us cause to be discouraged and disappointed. Lord, we pray that by the, your word this morning, you would help us to remind us of who you are, remind us of the truths of salvation, remind us of the joy that we have in you, and help us to rejoice. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. It's doctrinal. It's just not very practical. Some of you have heard that before. Maybe you've heard that critique, that statement, this sort of divide that exists between doctrine and practice. Yeah, it's really, really true, it's deep, it's theological, but will that book help me out? Uh, Is it giving me just information, or is it actually going to affect my life at all? The same will happen often with preaching. I liked that sermon. It was was very accurate. I, I just don't know if it had very much to do with my life. Does doctrine actually help us? There is this this belief that if, uh, if you want to have real religion, you need to get away from the, the doctrine, the weighty truths of the Bible, and you just kind of, I don't know, need to let the Spirit lead you if you want to have real joy and real love. Now, what we find from Paul in this part of Romans, especially as we get into Romans 5 through 8, uh, is that doctrine, the truth that he's been preaching, very much will have an impact on your life. That if you want to have a... Uh, a deeper sort of religion, a religion that's more uh, effective and influential, uh, a religion that's more real, it needs to be doctrinally informed. You need to know truth so that you live out truth. And you might think, well, how how would that make me live? If I was more doctrinally minded, it might make me more serious, or it might make me more discerning, or it might make me more mature, or however else you might think. But what's amazing in this passage is what Paul says is this, is if you're mindful of the truth of God's word, particularly the truth of salvation, it will make you happier. It should make you 
more joyful. It should make you smile more and celebrate more and to delight more. Because if this is true, it will impact your life in a way that makes you joyfully and confidently optimistic in this world. See, we we live in a day and age... Pastor John Sermon was so great this morning, and in a real sense, this is just a follow-up to what he just preached in Philippians. We live in a world that is sad, that is depressed. I know you can look at the culture as a whole. I was just shocked at the statistics of teenagers in the last year and a half because of the lockdowns. Uh, The number, uh, I remember in Nevada, reading about the number of teen suicides that went up during the hint of the lockdown. It, it, is a, it is a dark time. And when you look at the world, there's not much to be helpful about. But what the gospel offers you is not just uh, the right way, but a better way. It, it offers you real joy. It gives you reason to smile. It gives you reason to have a positive outlook, even as the world around you, or even just your own life circumstances, become difficult. And so this morning, I would just want to ask, are you known as a joyful Christian? If you're a Christian on your campus, are you known for, uh, for being just holy or for just saying no to activities or are you actually known for being happier than those around you? Because this passage this morning gives us great reason to rejoice. It compels us to rejoice. In fact, it's the word that pops up again and again. So if you look at the end of verse 2, Paul says, we rejoice. And in verse 3, it says, not only that, but we rejoice. And in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice. The word there for rejoice is the word for, some of yours might say glory. Some of yours will say boast. It is this confident happiness, this optimism that we have in who God is that makes us say, even when life is hard, we are joyful in Christ. My question is, are you joyful? There's plenty of reasons to look at the world, to look at ourselves, to look at our situations, and to be downcast, to possibly be depressed, to not be hopeful. But what I want you to see is to, to, as, if, as we as believers look around, as we look at the right things, we have all sorts of reasons to be joyful and to be happy Christians. And let me show you what Paul is showing us this morning. So three places we're going to look. We're going to look at the future, we're going to look at the present, and we're going to look at the past. And in each one of those, we find reason to be joyful. And my hope is just this. Honestly, if I could be really practical with you, my hope this morning is that you would smile more as a believer. Uh, That the same sort of excitement you have when a show comes on or when your music comes on, that you would actually delight in talking about God. It's very strange, even in our church, it's so doctrinal, that so few of you are happy to talk about the gospel. Oh, that should not be so. And Paul reminds us of that this morning, that we should be joyful when we think about these truths. Let's, let's look at these, this text together. Point number one is this. When we look at the future, we, we rejoice in our glory. When we look at the future, we rejoice in our glory. And apologize to the people on the sides. Appreciate you bearing with us. We've got to figure out the, the screens this week. But number one, when we look at the future, we rejoice in our glory. Paul is pivoting. He has been focusing on one thing in chapter one all the way to chapter four. That is, if you want to be right with God, if you want God to look at you and say, righteous, good, accepted, you belong to me, it's not by your good deeds. It's not by your religious creeds. It's not by any sort of tradition. If you want God to smile upon you and look at you and say, I accept you, it's through faith in Jesus alone. You're made righteous by faith. You're justified by faith in Christ. That is that by trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross, uh, that all of your sins would be forgiven and you'd be, be viewed by God as legally innocent. That's the point he's been making. And now he begins to explain what that looks like in the Christian life. And so verse one, he says, since we have been justified by faith, that is declared innocent. If you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus, if if you've confessed your sin and entrusted your life to him, the gavel has fallen. The jury's not out. That's still deliberating. You have been declared innocent, permanently, eternally, Uh, anticipating acceptance with the Father. 
God looks upon us and has declared us innocent. That's, that's amazing. And the result of that, according to verse 1, we talked about it a little bit last week, is we have, right now, peace with God. Isn't that amazing? When we go to God in prayer, it's not contentious. Uh, there's no disappointment. We have peace with God. And we have peace only through, it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That because we've aligned ourselves with Christ, we are loved by the Father as if we are sons because we're in the Son. That's the good news of the gospel. Is Jesus is our mediator that's gone between and made peace between us and the Father. And then in verse 2, it says, Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access to grace. Grace being God's favor. God's goodwill towards you. God's kindness to you. And what does it say? It says that through Jesus, we have access to this grace in which we stand. The, the word there is, uh, has the idea of result. You permanently, if you're a Christian, stand in grace. You are fixed in the realm where God's grace is constantly upon you. If you've ever been up to the Pacific Northwest, uh, I've been up to Washington and Oregon a few times, and you see these huge pine trees, things that do not exist uh, in California. And the reason is, is because something that also doesn't exist in California is rain. Uh, it doesn't hardly exist. And up there, it just rains and it showers all the time on these areas. And that's why these trees just stand firm and they're constantly being showered upon. That's a little bit of what it's like to be a Christian. You, through Jesus Christ, stand permanently fixed as a constant recipient of his grace towards you. There's a never a moment, if you're in Christ, that God the Father's goodwill towards you lets up. It is constantly, you're constantly under his favor. So that's what we have as believers. We have been justified. We have peace. We stand in grace. And therefore, what does Paul say? And in this, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. That's our first one. It's the first reason to be joyful. And what do we rejoice in? We're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Hope we've talked about before. It has the idea of certainty. Not doubt, not wishful thinking, but certainty. So again, uh, we're seven weeks away from the end of the semester, and uh, your grade is at a 54%, let's say. I know that's none of you in here, but you have a 54, and you're going, look, there's only seven weeks left. There's no hope. I'm going to fail this class, and I'll be taking freshman English again next year. I don't know, right? Now, when you say there's no hope, what you're not saying is that there's no one hoping you make it right? You hope you make it. Your parents, I'm I'm guessing, are rooting for you. That's not the idea, is is there's no confidence, right? There's no hope. We have zero expectation that this is going to work. That's that's why hope is used as confidence. Same thing when your team is down, football team's down 35-0 at halftime, and you go, we have no hope. It doesn't mean the fans don't want you to win anymore. They do. They just have zero expectation that that's going to happen. That, that's the idea of hope means certainty. What Paul is saying is we rejoice in hope. We have confidence that something is going to come about. Well, what is this hope? For we have this fixed reality because of Christ. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so what does that mean? The glory of God. Uh, glory, weightiness, greatness, praise, prominence. Uh, we have hope in the glory of God. Well, th- this doesn't mean we have hope that God will be glorified. By the way, we, we do have hope that God will be glorified. And God will do all things so that he is exalted and lifted up and elevated so that all people can see what a great God that he is. But what we need to see here is what exactly Paul is talking about, the hope of the glory of God. Well, take a look. Let's, let's flip around because he's been using this language. So if you go back to Romans 3.23, we looked at this. Romans 3.23 might be one page over. Might be on the page you're on now. That'd be great. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's something about sin that we, we fall short and we describe there that what Paul was saying is that we don't glorify God the way that we ought to. 
So something about the glory of God is about reflecting God and using our lives not to focus on ourselves, but to elevate him and show others who he is. Go to chapter 2, Romans 2. This will help us figure out what Romans 5 is talking about. If you go back to Romans chapter 2 and you look at verse 6, look at verse 6. This is a little paragraph where Paul is describing that, that God is an impartial judge. He doesn't care about your heritage. He doesn't care about your attendance. What does he care about? Well, look, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Each person's going to be judged by their works. Well, how? Verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, so glory here seems like something that you seek. And it's a good thing in this context, right? So those people who by obeying seek for glory and immortality and being honored, those will be rendered as good, but those who are self-seeking. Okay, look at verse nine. There will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Okay, so again, it, it seems here in this passage that glory is being viewed, described as a reward. That is what Paul is describing here in Romans 5.2. When he says the glory of God, what he's talking about is the glory that comes from God. That you would die and you would be glorified and honored and a recipient of eternal life. Friends, the hope for the Christian is not just this life. There are plenty of benefits of being a Christian in this life. But we are primarily a people who are seeking out delayed gratification. The hope for the Christian, uh, the hope for those of us who have trusted in Christ, is that after we die, glory, honor, our bodies will be glorified, will be exalted, forgiven. Listen, this is all over the scripture. It uses this, this language. And I think in our finite minds, we can't quite comprehend what it means. But listen to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, being Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So as Christians, we look forward to the day when we're going to be changed, that we're going to see Christ in all his glory, and we're going to be transformed to match and further radiate his glory. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that we will be changed when Christ is revealed. Uh, Colossians words it like this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That, that student, if you're in Christ, there is a time that is coming that this old life will end and you will be glorified with Christ to dwell in the presence of God and Christ forever. That all the frailties of being in a human body, all the sin nature that comes with our fallen flesh will be done away with forever. That sin will be gone and self-denial will no longer be required. That we will enjoy God forever. There will never be an end to these days. And we have, Paul says, the hope, the confidence of the glory of God. And in this, we rejoice. We rejoice. We delight. We celebrate. We boast. Braggy a little bit. Why? Because we are going to spend eternity in heaven with the God who has saved us. Only because Christ has saved us. Where there's no more goodbyes. Where, where there's no more pain. No more death. No more tears. No more sin. Just Christ forever. And in that, we rejoice. Student, I would just ask you, are you rejoicing in heaven? 
Do you think much about heaven? Are we those who celebrate what is coming towards us? How how strange it is that we complain about temporal things and we hardly celebrate the joy that is set before us. I was thinking about how to illustrate this and I was I'm just amazed. I, I don't I'm a, as I get older I should thank my parents more. There's an old proverb, the older you get, the smarter your parents become. And uh, and it's amazing how many things your parents let you get away with. I mean, sometimes your parents are literally driving you to Disneyland and you're complaining about the temperature in the car, the length of the drive. You don't like the music that's on. Like you're going somewhere that's awesome. Can you maybe just not complain for the the ride there? Isn't where you're going so much better than like whatever's happening now? Oh, the same should be true for us. How can we complain when we have heaven to look forward to? How could we let everything dominate our emotions that were just so downcast all the time? Because we have eternity to look forward to that will never end. Student, you have heaven to look forward to. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'll just ask you, what hope do you have? What hope do you have for the future? What hope do you actually have that all things will end well? Statistically, nothing around you gives you that sort of assurance. Oh, but Christ gives that to us who are believers. And why is that again? Why do we have that hope? Because we have been justified. Look at Romans chapter 8. I think this is good. This is not just me making this up. This is God who has told us this and has secured this for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have not been glorified yet, but in the mind of God, it's as good as done. And as sure as Jesus has risen from the dead and you've been justified by him, you can know that you're going to heaven. And in that, we can rejoice. Now, you might think, though, that, yeah, that's joy for now, and that's not the only source of joy we'll look at. But what about joy in the present time? We look at the future, rejoice in our glory, but what about now? Well, here's what Paul says second. When we look at the present, we rejoice in our sufferings. When we look at the present, We rejoice in our sufferings. Joy makes sense. The future does look brighter for those of us who are believers. But what about the here and now? Again, it's very strange. We're back in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our trials. We rejoice in our tribulations. How can that be? Life, we know, in a fallen world is brutal. There is unavoidable suffering, disappointment, constant impermanence. That no matter how good life is, it's like grasping after the wind. It can't stay good for long. Friends move away. Loved ones pass away. All that we gain, we eventually lose. And everything in between is suffering. Phone calls from doctors, physical suffering, to relational suffering, strife between friends. Now, what's good is that the Bible does not mask the reality that life is hard. Just try to hide that. The Bible gives good explanation for that. In fact, if you're not a believer, I would just ask you, what sort of explanation do you have for suffering in the world? You know, if God's not real, I can't believe any of that then what is your explanation for how to think about suffering? When in reality, I don't know if you really have one outside of Darwinism, survival of the fittest. Ultimately, I wouldn't suffer if I was just a little bit stronger. Then I wouldn't have suffering I could dominate. I don't know if you have many options outside of that. Life is hard for the, Christian, uh, for the non-Christian. Life is also hard for the believer. In fact, you add on top of just regular sufferings, the persecution and rejection that comes from following Christ in a world that hates him. But what is good is that true religion has an explanation for suffering. True religion can explain it. And though in this passage, and really the rest of the Bible, God doesn't always tell us every single reason for every single time we suffer. There is not suffering without purpose. He gives 
purpose. And Paul here gives purpose to rejoice in suffering because he tells for the believer what suffering does. Notice the flow here. Verse 3 again, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Uh, how do these go together? Let's, let's think about the flow. Suffering. What does suffering do in the life of the Christian? Well, suffering produces endurance. Now, it's hard when you think about endurance. It's, it's hard not to use an illustration of running. Okay, how many of you enjoy running in here? You are running people. Some of you are cross-country people. All you do is run. We'll pray for you. And, and how many of you are just like, if you asked me to run half a mile right now, I would die. I would actually die trying to run half a mile. And it's true. I believe it. I've seen some of you. And I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And if you're saying like, well, you know, I, I want to be able to run uh, let's say I want to run 6.2. I want to run, I want to run a 10K so I get a t-shirt, a little medal, and I can post it on the gram. Well, what would you do? Well, I would tell you to try to run a half mile, and you would, uh, you would die, and you would do it. But then, maybe a couple days later, you say, okay, today I'm going to run 0.75 miles without stopping. And now I'm going to go, next day, 1.0 miles. And I'll go like 1.2 miles. I don't know if I get to 2.5, maybe 1.2. And every day, you just kind of build a little bit. And what happens? It's, it's hard. And it maybe gets a little bit easier, but it's always a little bit difficult. But the idea is that in time that the, the suffering of running, which we can all relate to to some degree, is building what? Endurance. And soon you're able to run farther and faster without needing a break. Okay, that is a little bit of what it's like as a Christian to be faithful in suffering. Uh, the, word for, for, uh, the, wor- the word there for endurance is to remain under. It has the idea of remaining. That, man, I-, I really stay faithful in this sort of suffering. It's hard, but as suffering comes, I find that I'm able to stay faithful longer, that I'm able to act Christ-like longer. In fact, my suffering seem to be more and more severe, and yet each time I prove myself more godly. That's the idea of endurance, faithfulness, tested over the time. What does this endurance do? Well, this endurance produces character. Okay, character, the idea of godliness. Some of your versions might say proven character, and that's a good term there. That in the midst of suffering, as you learn to endure more and more, what we find out is what you're really like. You realize that. Um, I think often in the midst of suffering, um, we, we might mouth off in a way that we shouldn't. We might think in a way that we shouldn't. And we go, yeah, that was, that was sinful. But to be honest, it, it was a really hard time. Ah, but do you see? The Bible says that the hard times are what prove who you really are. Right? Anyone can be like a Christian when it's really easy. It's when life gets difficult that you prove your faithfulness and your allegiance to God and how strong it is when you don't always get your way. Well, what endurance does is proves character. Like, yes, I'm not just confessing Christ. I really actually believe Christ. And what suffering can do in that endurance, it, it, it prunes our character. It refines our character. Much like gold, you know this, is melted down through intense heat to remove, remove impurities. Trials weed out ungodliness in our life, and the end result is we should look more like Christ. Okay, so we say we believe in Christ, and then suffering comes and we endure. It proves our character. Well, what's that proven character uh, result in? That proven character results in hope. Character produces hope. Character produces confidence. Character produces uh, that steadfast belief that we will actually be in heaven. Not because we've earned it, but it's the character that goes along with faith. Have I really trusted in Jesus? Yes. You know why? Because my trials prove it. Oh, steadfastness in the midst of trials in this world give you confidence that you'll actually be with Christ in the next. And so because of that, you ready? We rejoice. We rejoice in trials. 
Lord, I'm still joyful when my life is falling apart. I'm still joyful in the midst of rejection. I'm still joyful in the midst of unexplained pain. Why? Because I'm still clinging to you, which I know doesn't come from me, but that's from you. And because I'm still clinging to you, I have hope that I'll actually be with you in the next life. It's a hope that it says, verse five, uh, four, uh, for, sorry, verse five, and hope does not put us to shame. Right? It's this confidence that this is real. And I will not be put to shame because I've trusted in the Lord in all things. I have it on the screen there. Isaiah 49, verse 23, the end of the verse reads, Then you will know that I am the Lord, and those who wait, those who endure for me, shall not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. Joel 2, 27, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am Yahweh your God, and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Student, that doesn't give an explanation for all your trials. You know what's good? Is when when life does get really hard, and you're still clinging to Jesus, because as we sing, he's still holding you fast, it gives you that confidence that says, yeah, I am going to be with him in eternity. I'm still holding fast because he's still holding me fast, even when life is hard. And so because of that, we rejoice in trials. Trials is just another opportunity to be more confident that your faith in Jesus is real, and therefore you're really going to heaven. And so student, I would just ask you this morning, how are you doing in the midst of trials? Do your trials produce proven character? It's a good thing for us staff to ask as well. Is do our trials demonstrate godly character or reveal that our faith might not be as real as we confess that it is? Let me get very practical with you. I mean, we're in the midst, we're in month 18 of a trial in our country. Are you godlier now than you were in February of 2020? Is your speech kinder now? Are your thoughts more pure now than they were 18 months ago? Because if you're a Christian, whatever trials that might be happening politically under the sovereign hand of God might be happening in your life, they have a refining effect. Yeah, there'll be times we mess up, but overall, are you seeing proven character in the midst of trials? Soon if you are, rejoice in your trials. And bring down another 20 years of lockdown if it means I'm going to spend forever with Christ. And I can know it in this life. What are your trials telling you about your faith? It might be a really good question to ask yourself today after lunch. Or as you just kind of go to bed tonight after your sugar coma, you can just ask yourself, Lord, what are my trials telling me about my... Not about the easy moments. Not about the, the emotions when the band's playing. What do my trials tell me? about the legitimacy of my faith and the hope I have for eternity. Where do we find joy? Well, we look at the future. We rejoice in our glory, the glory that God is going to give those who he has saved. We look at the present. We rejoice in our trials. Finally, let's consider this. When we look at the past, we rejoice in God's love. When we look at the past, we rejoice in God's love says in verse 5 that hope does not put us to shame. It will not leave us disappointed. Well, why is that? Why will we not be disappointed? There's plenty of things we put our hope in that have disappointed us. That's the nature of being a sports fan, is putting your hope in things that disappoint you. How do we know that this won't disappoint us? Right? There are people who lie all the time. You know, from a, uh, from a politician saying, I'm not going to run, a few weeks later it turns out they're running, to parents who tell their kids, don't worry, mom and dad are staying together, only to find you're somewhere else during the week as you are on the weekend. So how do we know this hope won't disappoint us? The answer is God's love. The reason why God will not disappoint us if you're in Christ is because God loves us. That the eternal being from whom are all things, who is the creator of all things, uh, who upholds the universe, loves those who are His. 
affectionately, zealously, graciously. The love of God is what gives us hope that we will not be disappointed. So how do we know we'll make it to the end? It's not, well, I'm clinging really fast. How do we know we'll make it to the end? Well, I'm close and I'm doing well. We know we'll make it not because we look at us, but because we look at God's love. Now, looking at God's love in our setting, when I mean our setting, I mean, I mean this church setting, is really hard. And here's what I mean by that. Because it goes back to kind of what I said in the introduction. Because there are some out there who have turned the love of God into a mushy boy band song. And God's love is like a 14-year-old boy writing a letter uh, to his girlfriend. And we go like, ooh, that's bad. And so what we do is we turn the, the love of God into a really stern thing, you know, a doctrinal thing. And what I want you to see here is in this passage that Paul wants us not just to know, but to feel the love of God. And it's not just Paul that wants us to do that. It's God who wants us to know, yes, you are actually loved by me if you're in Christ. That there's never a moment that God does not love you affectionately. That that God does not want what's best for you. And he explains that through subjective means and objective means. Or if you want to give some subpoints to this, God's love is something that God wants us to feel and it's something that he wants us to know. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to know it. How does he want us to feel it? Verse five, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting phrase. That could mean a lot of different things, a lot of different things you could hypothesize as to how to interpret that passage. It could mean something people think about, this is my ability to show God's love. But, but that's not what this passage is saying. Let me, let me help us out here with a cross-reference to Romans 8. Go to Romans chapter 8 real quick. This is, Christian, this is so important. If you're someone who wishes you knew more confidently whether your faith is real or not, this is a text that you need to look at. So Romans chapter 8, talking about the ministry of the Spirit. Verse 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the deed, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, the the Holy Spirit that resides in you is not meant to have you live in fear. We're not supposed to be those who are fearful whether or not the outcome is going to be okay. We're not fearing, did I actually pass the test? But, But what do we want? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. How can you know that God is really your father? Subjectively? It's the Spirit that tells us. That the Holy Spirit tells us what we would not otherwise be able to say on our own. Uh, I love John Bunyan talks about how if a Christian who is rightfully understanding their sin has such a hard time saying one word to God, Father, How could a Christian who knows the holiness of God and knows their own sin well actually pray, Father, as if God were their father? Bunyan's answer, it's the spirit. God has put his spirit inside of you to minister to you To give you the confidence. Yes. God really loves a sinner like me. Oh, I can go to God in prayer. Yes, on the merits of Jesus. Yes, because he's infinite and omnipresent. But yes, because he loves me. It's not a man-made idea. It's the spirit that God has given us that testifies to us that we can actually call him father. 
And so we can rejoice. Why? Because we have this confidence that what? That God loves us. It's not something that we just made up. It's something that God wants you to know. And he put his spirit inside of you to know that. Christian, that's why we could rejoice in knowing God's love. That's why we feel less loved, by the way, um, when, we, when we walk in sin. Right? Because when we walk in sin, we quench the spirit. We resist the spirit. But we do not allow the spirit to reign in our lives. And therefore, we have a harder time feeling the love of God. Why? Because we've, well, we've not allowed the spirit to be at work in our life through holiness. Oh, but that's why a Christian who is in Christ, who is walking in holiness, is not confident in God's love for them because of their own, but because of the merits of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. So God wants us to know, he wants us to feel the love of God. But it's not just the feeling. And we know that, right? We know that, uh, that the band can get up here and play any sweet lick for a few minutes and just make us like, yeah, I am loved of God. It's not just subjective. It is something that we want to know. It's objective. What Paul does here is he goes from here and says, let me explain to you what the love of God is. The love of God is not just some vague, mystic, ambiguous fog, like God reaches out and loves you and loves me and loves everyone. No, it's real. It's objective because it's proven in a moment that happened in history. It's, I want to feel the love of God inside of me, but it doesn't start inside of me. It's a reality because of something that happened outside of me. At a moment of time, the cross. Look at verse 6 now. This is Paul's description. He goes, you want to know what the love of God is? Here's what it is. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This begins his explanation of God's love. It starts with understanding who we are. We are, outside of Christ, weak. That is, we are unable to do any good thing on our own. God does not love us in the same way that we love puppies in some pet adoption commercial. We see them like frolicking around in their ears and you're like, oh, I want to rescue all the puppies. Look at them. That is not the case. We were weak in this passage. That is, we were unable to obey and we were ungodly. That is, we wanted nothing to do with God. We were cool with religion as long as it helped us avoid God. Oh, we didn't want him. But while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Now think about this, Paul says. Like one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Right? If you, if you just knew in general, there's some, uh, there's some good guy that's going to die. Uh, this person's going to die. Would you be willing to die for this innocent man? And most people would go, I really don't know that guy. I'm sure he's great. That's a bummer. He's not, but I'm, I'm not willing to die in his place. And then Paul says, for even a good man, some might be willing to die. The idea there being somebody that you know. You know, think about a neighbor who's overall like got good character. Think about a relative who's like, man, I've just seen this person's character. They're a good person. Even that kind of person, oh, you might be able be willing to die. Right? Usually us sacrificing our life for another is not something that we do that often. But God, verse 8, demonstrates his love for us. His love for us in what? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were sinners, rebels, who wanted nothing to do with him, God put forth Christ, the one with whom he'd had perfect fellowship with all eternity, the one in whom his soul delights. The father loves the son. God the father put forth his son. He had Christ die for us. And yes, he had Christ die for us. And he had Christ die for you, for your sin. God the father, if you're a Christian, loves you so much that he had Christ Die in your place. That's the love of God. That's God's love for sinners. Rather than condemning us as his enemies forever. Rather than rightfully just sending us to, to hell for all eternity. Where we would receive the, the just due for our actions. 
God had Christ die for sinners. Verse 10, it says, while we were enemies, he died for us. This is God's love for you, Christian. And what's the result of this? The result of Christ dying in your place, if you've come to him, is what? Justification, verse 9, and reconciliation, verse 10. Verse 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that is, we've been forgiven, declared innocent, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Here's Paul's argument. If while you were guilty, Christ died and made you innocent, then when God judges the whole world, how much more than is he not going to judge you? If he did this while you were guilty, how good is he going to treat you while you're innocent? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Oh, this is amazing truth, Christian. Jesus' death did not just wipe away the penalty of sin. It took those who were far off from God and brought them near. You need forgiveness, but you need more than forgiveness. You need nearness, fellowship, friendship with the holy God. And Jesus gives you access, gives you, as we already said, peace with this God. Verse 10 again. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his son, now that we're his friends, doesn't that give us confidence that in the last judgment, we'll be with God? Doesn't that give us the confidence that when God comes to judge the world, you will be welcomed and accepted and embraced? Why? Because I was faithful. No way. Because of God's love for sinners. Because God loves sinners, and God, if you're a Christian, loves you with not some mushy, weak love, but a love that is proven in the death of His Son. What's the response? Verse 11. Much more than that, here's our third one. We rejoice. We rejoice. The gospel is not something we just recite with a bland face. Oh, if your face stays boring when you talk about the gospel, I have a hard time believing you've been saved by the gospel. Because if you know your sin and you know the love of God, of the God who knew you in your lostness and knows you even in your sin now, then how can you not be moved? How can you not rejoice? Oh, student, how come we're so excited to talk about so many silly things, but staff people have to pull any sort of Bible talk out of your mouth because you'd rather talk about anything else? That's not joy. Friends, we've been saved. Look, look, we all have times we talk about other things. I'm not talking about, I'm not saying we talk about the Bible and the Bible only. I'm just saying if this is a delight to us, then aren't we going to boast in the forgiveness we've been given? Are we going to delight in this, rejoice in this? Are we going to smile? Would it kill us to sing? I don't want to be legalistic. I'm just saying, do you rejoice in this news? And when I say rejoice, what does Paul say? Notice, he doesn't say we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in any sort of religious formula, any sort of doctrinal treaties. We also rejoice in God. The joy we have as Christians is in a person. It's in the person of God. God who has made all of this possible. God who has secured your eternity. God who has given meaning to your trials because he's over your trials. And he gives you confidence in the midst of your trials. And he gives you confidence of his love by the Spirit. And he sent his son to die for your sins. And we don't sit back and go, praise theology. Praise the gospel doctrine. All our worship goes to him. He who has made us 
right with him. I love Psalm 65.1. I've been thinking about this and convicted about this verse. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. Praise is due to you. I wonder if those around me took an account of the things I talked about. Would they see praise for God or praise for other things? I'm sure my theology would be seen as mostly accurate. But what are the things I praise? And what are the things you praise? As a Christian, how could we complain? We can rejoice in God. And in Him, we have full happiness, full satisfaction, full reason to rejoice. The Gospel of Mark, there's a young man who comes to Jesus. Uh, he is rich, he is young, he is a ruler. You, you know him. Uh, you've heard this before if you've grown up uh, at church. And he knows the law, and he knows the commands of God, and he says, I've kept them from my youth up. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and follow me. And the man walks away sad. He has many treasures. He thinks, I need these treasures to be joyful. You thought about what would the rich young ruler have had if he decided to accept Jesus' invitation? Well, he would have had the things we talked about. He would have had future glory, not just present um, trinkets that are going to burn one day. He would have had explanation for hardship in life. Wealth does not excuse you from pain. But what would he have ultimately had? Jesus said, come and what? Follow me. He would have had Christ. He would have had Christ on his side. Christ as his treasure. The love of the Father as his guarantee. Isn't it sad that so many people reject Christ fearing what they might lose and never thinking about what they might lose if they reject Christ? Student, if you're a Christian, you're not one of those people. You have future hope. You have an explanation for when life is hard. You have God. And the love of God is a guarantee in your life. It gives us tremendous reason to rejoice. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. God, I pray that our joy would be rooted in you. That as we think about these truths, eternity, your love for us. God, that we would delight in them. That they would thrill our hearts and give us deep satisfaction. Not a happiness that comes and goes, but a permanent joy that, that's rooted in all that you've done for us, Lord. God, I, I pray there'd be no fake emotions as a result of this. That's not our aim here. Our aim is that we would know and realize in our soul all that you've done for us. And that as a result, we would rejoice in them because we are the objects of such great love. Lord, may we honor you in this time. We give you all the glory for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.